today. I'm in Luke chapter 22. So if you have a Bible with you, would you join me in the third gospel, the 22nd chapter? Nothing is more difficult or more burdensome than living under a sentence of death. I visited uh, not too long ago with someone in the hospital. And not long before I'd arrived to visit with this precious member of our church, a medical professional had been in the room and had basically communicated to her that she had only about six months to live. And as I sat down by her bedside, she said to me, kind of in a hushed undertone, she said, I always thought those were words that doctors spoke to somebody else. Never in my wildest dreams did I ever think those words would be spoken to me. Did you know that from the moment Jesus Christ entered human history, he lived every step of his life under the sentence of death. From the time of his youth, even from the time of his birth, the cross cast a large, foreboding, looming shadow over the entire life of Jesus. Jesus knew it. He shared it with his disciples. They failed to comprehend it. And now, as that critical hour approached the life of Jesus Christ, every one of them had to face it. And it's in times like those, it's in times like these that we're now living in, that we are reminded of how fragile and how fleeting life really is. And it's in days like these that I personally am somehow comforted to know that I have a Savior who knows what it's like to face a crisis. Today begins a period of the church here known as Holy Week, sometimes called Passion Week. And any study of the passion of Jesus has to begin not at the place called Golgotha, but in a garden called Gethsemane. Jesus has shared the Lord's Supper with his disciples in the upper room. It was the final Passover Seder that he would ever have with them. That's called the Last Supper. And at the end of the Last Supper, the full meal, Jesus basically institutes what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. He does something ceremonial, and he shares with them the body of Christ and the blood of Christ in the bread and in the wine. And having done that, he leads his disciples out of that upper room, down through the streets of Jerusalem, past the temple, outside the city gates. They're singing hymns of praise to God as they go along. And as they leave the city proper, they go down a deep ravine and then across the Kidron Valley, the Valley of Blood, and then they begin to scale the steep incline called the Mount of Olives. And they come eventually to one of Jesus' favorite places, and that's where things begin to get really heavy. 
This event that I'm about to read is recorded in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But for today, let's look and see what Luke says in his own way. Luke 22, beginning in verse 39. And Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, the place called Gethsemane, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleep for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This may be the most poignant portrait that we have in the entire Bible of our Christ in crisis. And the whole course of human history is going to hinge on how Jesus responds to and deals with this high point of crisis in his life. Now, I would not ever pretend to imagine that we could fully understand the depth of the agony and the suffering and the turmoil and the pain that Jesus is going through in the garden. This is among the holy of holies of scriptures. And we need to take great care of how we communicate it and how we receive it. But I do think that there are some important takeaways that we can learn as we face crises of our own throughout the course of our life. There are principles that help us to navigate the inevitable feelings of isolation and loneliness and shock and dismay in our times of turmoil. The first thing we notice is that in his hour of crisis, Jesus suffered. We have a Christ who understands the pain of suffering. The Garden of Gethsemane is where Jesus and three of his disciples are at this point inside the garden proper. It was a very private and beautiful place located there on the Mount of Olives. It was a place of solitude. Jesus visited there very often in his ministry when he found himself in Jerusalem, especially in times when he needed to get away, when he needed a quiet moment of reflection when he needed to pray. Many of the olive trees that are there today have been there literally hundreds of years. I've been there twice myself, and many from our church have as well, and it's just an incredibly beautiful place. Those trees are short, they're bulky, they're twisted, they're gnarly. They kind of give you a picture of something out of Tolkien's Fangorn Forest, and yet they make for an incredible, shady, beautiful backdrop garden setting. If you're ever there you'll glory in the place that it is, and there'll be no wonder why Jesus really enjoyed going there. The word Gethsemane is a word that means oil press. The olives from those trees would be placed eventually as they were cultivated in an olive press, and that press would crush them 
And once those olives were crushed, the oil would be extracted from them and it would be used for cooking and for medicinal purposes and for lighting lamps and things like that. And there in this olive press of suffering, our Lord would be broken and he would be crushed himself so that we could benefit from his time of agony by knowing God and being forgiven of our sin and coming into a right relation, an eternal relationship with the God of heaven through what he's about to do. He did it all for us. But even though it may well have been quiet in the garden that night, it was anything but peaceful. Quiet, yes. Peaceful, no. Especially in the inner spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Mark's gospel, Mark's account of this passage that we've read, Mark tells us that Jesus began to be, in his words, greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. New English Bible says, horror and dismay overwhelmed him, came over him. Another translation says, horror and anguish overwhelmed him. So as Jesus faced the cross, he didn't do it, brothers and sisters, with a stiff upper lip. He didn't do it biting the inside of his mouth, showing absolute uh, resolution. No, the Bible says he was emotional in the garden. He was affected by what was about to happen. He really did hurt. And the question is why? Why was Jesus in agony? Why was Jesus in anguish? Why did Jesus suffer? Why was he experiencing pain? Well, for one reason, he was all alone in terms of what he was experiencing. Judas had already taken steps to betray him, and he was long gone by this time. And Jesus knew that when things got really hot, all of the disciples would do as Jesus did, not betray him, but flee from him. They would all run except for John. They would desert him in fear and desert him in shame in his hour of crisis. And even here in the garden, rather than watching and praying along with Jesus as he instructed the three that are with him, Peter, James, and John, those guys, even though they're only a stone's throw away from Jesus, are sleeping the night away. So Jesus was all alone in this crisis. But even greater than that was the anguish that was caused by the fact that Jesus knew that his mission involved certain death, a painful, excruciating, isolating kind of death. This was the man who had walked in perfect harmony with God, the very sinless son of God, who had walked with God. Not only would he be deserted by his disciples, But in the hour that was to come, the Bible says he would soon be forsaken by God himself, separated from his father as he died on the cross. And as the weight of the cross came over him and before him, crashing down literally upon his spirit, Jesus agonized in the garden in ways that we'll never be able to fully comprehend or understand. And as he reflected and agonized on the horror of that absolute loneliness and physical pain and suffering, Luke tells us that it was demonstrated physically and that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, only Luke tells us that, but you got to remember that Luke is a doctor, so it shouldn't surprise us that that would be a detail that wouldn't escape him. 
He mentions this rare medical conditions where the sweat glands rupture and a bloody watery mixture comes oozing out of the pores of the victim. Jesus had already told his disciples that his soul was troubled to the point of death and now we see that his physical condition is literally critical. And the Bible says, and Luke again is the only person that tells us this in the Bible, that there's an attending angel there ministering to Jesus. And you know what? I believe that it's the presence of that attending angel that kept Jesus alive there in the garden. I think that apart from the ministering presence of that angelic being from heaven, Jesus may well have died right there in the garden under the weight of the oppression of what was not only about to happen, but what was happening within him there in the garden. It's an amazing scene. Tears running down his face, sweat pouring from his brow, blood oozing from his skin. This is the human Jesus, my brothers and my sisters. Anguish to the extreme. It's almost too much to comprehend, almost too much to even bear. But there is encouragement in a suffering Savior. Listen, there is great encouragement in knowing that we have a Savior, a living Lord, who knows what it means to experience pain, who knows what it's like to hurt, a Savior whose soul shook, a Savior whose body failed. John R. W. Stott writes these words, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. For in the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? Our sufferings become more manageable in light of this, in light of our Savior's suffering. So in his hour of crisis, Jesus suffered. And that's one reason, brothers and sisters, why we can trust him with our very lives. He's been before us. He knows what we're experiencing in our own times of crisis. And because of that, we can rejoice. But notice also that in his hour of crisis, Jesus prayed. In his suffering, he responded with prayer. We began these times of online broadcast uh, three weeks ago today. And I preached a message about how prayer is going to get us through it, right? And this is the first response of the Lord Jesus. He goes to the garden as he faced his hour of crisis, and he prays. And it ought to be the first response of every follower of Jesus to any dark and dangerous situation that we may face. The Apostle James writes that in the difficult days of the early church, is any among you suffering? What's the response? If the answer is yes, let him pray. Are you suffering? Are you troubled? Are you confused? Are you lonely? Drop to your knees and pray to God. The most obvious image in this passage is that, Jesus falling to the ground and praying to his Father. And it's not just any prayer. It's an urgent prayer. It's an extreme prayer. Offered not in the customary standing position of a Jew. Most Jews would stand with their arms lifted to heaven and pray. Now, the urgency of the prayer is indicated by Luke when he says he knelt down to pray. And I think that that was only a starting position for Jesus. He begins by kneeling down to pray. Matthew says in his gospel that Jesus fell on his face and prayed. Flat of his face, down in the dirt, which is even more extreme. 
And as time moved on, Luke rather tells us that the urgency of Jesus' prayer increased as time passed. Verse 44, being in agony, he prayed how? More earnestly. We often tend to reverse that in our times of crisis, don't we? The harder things get, much of the time, the harder things get, the more we often spend less energy in prayer and more energy trying to fix the problem ourselves. You know as well as I do, we're in the midst of a crisis right now we can't fix. I mean, we believe it's soon going to dissipate and and pass. We don't know how long it's going to take, but only God can do it. There are some precautions that we can take, but we're not in the driver's seat here. But Jesus doesn't try to fix things on his own. In his hour of crisis, the Bible says Jesus prayed more earnestly. And I think it's the prayer of Jesus that really reveals how much distress he's in. The principal cause of distress is revealed in terms of the content of his prayer. Yeah, he's under a a powerful weight when it comes to the physical death sentence that he knows is before him. But I tell you, many people have faced impending death without a lot of emotion. I know a lot of stories of people who know that they're going to die and they face it bravely not much emotion at all, and certainly without the sweating of blood. I mean, Jesus had faced the possibility of physical harm many times in his life. He faced the possibility of certain death many times in his life. And in none of those occasions did Jesus ever seem rattled. You know, when Jesus' life was physically threatened in his three-year public ministry, it never seemed to really bother him to any great degree. But then we come to the prayer. And the substance of the prayer is stated very briefly. Verse 42, Father, here's the prayer, Father, remove this cup from me. That's what Jesus prayed for. Now, what does he mean when he talks about that cup? Because we would understand it if Jesus said, remove this burden from me, remove this task from me. But he uses metaphorical language there. Father, remove this cup. Let this cup pass from me. Well, you need a little Old Testament context because that cup is mentioned all throughout the Old Testament, particularly by the prophets of God. It's an an image that is not infrequent throughout the pages of the Old Covenant of God. And it's always used to describe the judgment of God. The cup is used to describe the wrath of God, God's hostility, God's punishment, God's attitude, His settled anger toward the very sin that separates us from him. You see that, for example, in Jeremiah 25. Notice it beginning in verse 15. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this what? Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So that cup, my brothers and my sisters, is what Dr. Philip Ryken calls the bitter brew of the judgment of God. 
And it explains why Jesus was praying so fervently, so energetically, so earnestly. I mean, imagine in that cup was all of the sin of all the world that had ever been committed past, present, and it contained the sin of every person who hadn't even been born yet. Every rape, every murder, every lie, every false witness, every act of deception was in that cup. And Jesus had a glimpse of it. Every evil act, all the hatred, every corrupt thought. And there in the garden, as he agonized, God gave him a vision of that cup. God allowed Jesus to see in no uncertain terms what was inside of it. And God reminded him that that cup was Jesus's to bear. And I'm just telling you, when Jesus caught a glimpse of that cup, it absolutely horrified him. It shook him to the very core of his soul. Because listen, as great as the threat of physical pain was to the Lord Jesus Christ, it pales in comparison to the incomprehensible agony of bearing the full, total, complete wrath of God as a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. We can't comprehend that and never will be able to. But now you know why Jesus was sweating droplets of blood. And as he faced all of that, he prayed. He earnestly prayed for a way out. He wanted to be released from that responsibility. He wanted to be released from the burden of having to bear that cup for God to find some other way to judge sin than with the requirement of his own life. But Jesus knew he was the Lamb of God. As John the Baptist, his forerunner, said at the very beginning of his ministry three years earlier, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus knew there was no plan B. There was no other way. He was the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world. And what a remarkable thing that as Jesus is going through all this, remember, as Jesus prayed, the disciples slept. Across the Gospels, we to, we're told that three times Jesus went back and forth, check on those boys. Now, every time he found them sawing logs, sleeping the night away, too tired to intercede for their Lord. They just didn't comprehend what was going on. They just didn't get it. They still didn't understand, no matter how many times Jesus had taught them over the course of three years and intensely over the past 18 months of his ministry. They didn't understand. And verse 46 is important. Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And I'm just saying, man, today, 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 that's a word for us. In these critical life times that we're all in, it's time for God's people to arise from their slumber and begin to pray to begin to take hold of the horns of the very altar of God and call on the name of God for deliverance and call on the name of God for salvation and call on the name of God to move among this landscape and through this incredible time where we're susceptible to a virus that has incredible symptoms and for many will result in death. To through that bring about an incredible 
transformational, environmental altering revival that changes our city, our nation, our state, our land, and even the world for the glory of God. Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Man, this was a time of satanic attack. Much in the same way at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he was satanically attacked by the devil in the wilderness, tempted day and night for 40 days and 40 nights. And here at the end of his ministry, he's under extreme satanic oppression. The devil is trying to get our Lord to throw up his hands and say, no, I'm not going to do it. Absolutely not. No person should have to endure this kind of agony and suffering, trying to get Jesus to walk away from it all. So there's an epic battle of the will going on physically and emotionally, spiritually, great duress. The question is, in our times of duress, what will we do? I mean, will we stay committed to the will of God? Or do we look for a shortcut? Try to find a way around it. Because the way temptation attacks us, appeals to the flesh, and the only way to get around it, the Bible says, is for God's people to rise and pray. It's a good word to sleepy churches, sleepy Christians, sleepy preachers. Rise up and, and pray. What will the church do in this time where we can't physically gather together? Uh, two, two incredible and diverse polar opposite opportunities. One's just to get lazy. Get lazy, get casual, kick back, relax, not even think about the things of God because we're removed from the accountability of the church and not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together the Bible teaches us that there is accountability in remaining together with one another. When that's taken away, sometimes the path of least resistance is to just kind of go lazy, to withdraw and not pay attention to the critical things we used to. The other end of that, it can drive us to the presence of God himself, it can take us deeper. It can create an even more urgent dependence in our life on God to be God. What will it be for you, for me? What choice will we make as the people of God at Hillcrest? The Bible knows nothing of short. There are no shortcuts to Christian growth. So it's time for God's people to rise and pray. And in our rising and in our praying, we'll connect even more deeply to God. And God will teach us things that we could have never learned otherwise, apart from the pain. As he faced his greatest hour of crisis, Jesus prayed. And then finally, and maybe most importantly, in his hour of crisis, Jesus trusted. He trusted. We've also talked a lot about the importance of learning to trust the promises of God. It's where the rubber meets the road. Because it's easy to trust God in the good times and the profitable times. And when everything is good and we don't have any seemingly uncertainty with respect to life, we're just kind of on autopilot. It's kind of easy to trust the Lord. But when times get difficult, when there's uncertainty, fear around every corner, sometimes it's really hard. And the most obvious scene, I think, in this whole passage 
is that of Jesus praying. And if that's true, the most obvious part of the prayer is the way Jesus concludes it. We tend to focus on the first part of the prayer, Father, let this cup pass from me. But you don't want to put a period there, only a comma, because there is a nevertheless that's just critically important. Nevertheless, verse 42, not my will, but yours be done. That's beautiful. You know why? Because that's a statement of full, total, complete submission and surrender to God the Father. That's total trust in the plan of God, even though it's going to be agony for the next 24 hours and beyond. But that's what Jesus' whole life was all about. That's why he was sent by the Father. That was the whole scope and purpose of his mission and of his ministry. And now here in the garden, in the critical moment of his brief life, Around 30 years of age, Jesus demonstrates that there is nothing in his life, and I mean absolutely nothing, that's more important than the will of God fully accomplished in and through his life. He'd already said that. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And Jesus was resolved to do it. Jesus knew. He knew the meaning. He knew the course. He knew the destination of his life. Do you remember what Jesus said earlier in his ministry in John 12? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Verse 27, for this purpose, I have come into this hour to die, but through my death, Jesus said, to bear much fruit, to bring many sons to glory. And then Jesus concludes, Father, glorify your name. In other words, Jesus makes it very clear. God, it's all about you. It's not about me, not my will, but thine be done. Father, glorify thy name, glorify it in all the earth. That's a prayer of absolute trust in the sovereignty of God. It's not at all wrong to tell God the desires of your heart. Just make sure that you trust God more than you trust the desires. Amen. Make sure you put your faith in God more than you put your faith in the way God answers your prayer. More in God than in the desires of your heart. Man, we love to pray for God to change things. God gets like that little boy we talked about a couple of weeks ago. God, get us out of this mess. That's the way we typically drop to our knees and pray. We pray for God to get us out of the mess. Well, maybe God wants us in the mess. Maybe there are things that we can only learn in the middle of the mess that we would never come to understand otherwise. So sometimes better than praying for change is to just learn to pray for God's very best. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Better than praying for God to change things, better than praying as so many TV preachers tell you to do, pray for a miracle today. Better than that is praying for the glory of God in your life. That's how Jesus prayed. 
And that's what got him strength to endure the difficult crises of life. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That was his way of saying what? Father, I trust you. We'll never have to bear a cross like Jesus bore. We can't comprehend it. But there'll be times that we have to bear heavy burdens, heavy loads. And in those times, for those who trust and hope in the Lord alone, the cross always gives way to resurrection. Amen. On the other side of every cross is the power of the empty tomb. And when we live in the light of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, victory over pain, victory over death, victory over suffering, we know that on the other side of resurrection is always a crown, the crown of righteousness that God will reward to those who love him and who have received him by faith. And that, brothers and sisters, is why we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to be afraid. The victory has already been won through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, in this crisis, or any other crisis that we may face, be reminded, yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we need not fear any evil, for the risen Christ is with us. His rod and his staff will both guide, guard, and comfort those of us who've been saved by his blood and are wise enough to walk in total trust. Will you do that today? Stay firm, stay confident, keep praying, and watch the glory of God begin to move in and through your life for his glory. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.